on Dark. My name is Eirik Storson, and you're listening to the Brute Norse Podcast. Today's episode is part two of my interview with archaeologist Axel Klausen. It's a brilliant conversation, so if you haven't heard the first part yet, I highly recommend you go back and do so. But now, before we go on, I'm going to read you a few passages from the 10th century Anglo-Saxon poem Widsith as it contains an extensive list of renowned kings and kingdoms of the poet's ancient and recent past, a few of which we shall name and discuss over the next hour, but the rest of them will all be with us in spirit, just like the poet imagines himself at their courts. In the Mead Hall, how my worthy patrons rewarded me. I was with Huns and with Goths, and with Swedes and with Geats, and with South Danes, with Vandals. I was with Varney and with Vikings. With the Gepids I was and with Wends, and with Gevlegs. With the Angles I was and with Swearby, and with the Aeonese, with the Saxons and with Skigs, and with Suarines. With the Rons I was and with the Deans. And with Hetherims, with Thurungians I was, and with the Thorns, and with Burgundians. There they gave me a ring, there Guthair gave me a shining treasure, as a reward for my songs. He was not a bad king. With the Franks I was, and with Frisians, with Flomtings. With the Rugians I was, and with Gloms, and with Romans. I was in Italy, too, with Alboin. Of all men he had, as I have heard, the readiest hand to do brave deeds, the most generous heart in giving out rings and shining torques, Audun's son. You know what kind of vibe I get from this poem? I think if you've heard the song Highwayman by the Highwaymen, I guess you'll know what I'm talking about. The feeling you have when there is a kinship between things that are not physically related to each other, at least, but there's a spiritual relationship, I guess. Like uh, how the Highwayman lives on while this poet travels through space and time and visits the courts of ancient kingdoms and empires. The bastards hung me in the spring of 25, but I am still alive. In this episode, we're gonna dive deeper into Germanic, Hunnic, and Roman identity, and see how some Germanic kingdoms look to the Romans and to the gods to legitimize themselves. Other subjects we get into is Germanic animal styles and surrealist art and runes and writing in a non-written storytelling culture, which was what the Germanic culture, or should I say cultures, originally was. Now, I kicked off the last episode with a brilliant track by the brilliant, weird, post-punk folk assembly called Imstammen. I'm gonna play another classic by the same band, just because I can. This is where the old gods set root. This is the Langobards, Langobardene.
längre Så jag kan den inte på rams Men läser den i hården podcast we want to show the world how great scandinavia is of course yeah. as a womb of nations come yeah, on the womb of nations we are entirely biased keep that in mind for the duration of this podcast that we are scandinavian centrists <laughs> above all <laughs> second-rate scholars primarily we are ethnocentric bastards drunks too anyway conan what is best in life another thing that happens of course towards the end of the Roman Empire is the emergence of the Huns, right? You yeah. can't skip that. 
No, they they leave uh, quite a footprint. <laughs> Hoofprint, perhaps is better to say. Um, in in the wake of their uh, march or steady march into uh, what was well Eastern Europe at the time. Their trot into yeah, Eastern. Their trot into Eastern Europe, um, and of course the uh, Germanic kingdoms that was already established um, north and west of the Black Sea area which of course is the Goths, most known as Goths, um, they uh, soon realized they were uh, basically staring down uh, both uh, arrowheads, but also lance heads, Hunnic lance heads, and of course uh, feeling the hooves uh, of, the, of the Huns. The Huns are interesting uh, culturally because, uh, well, first of all, they are... They scared the shit out of the Roman Empire and did the same to many Germanic tribes. But also, the Huns worked according to ways that the Germanic uh, societies at the time could respect in in an almost mafioso way. Probably they <laughs> there was a certain omerta there that they could uh, could enjoy uh, to such a degree where you have actually Germanic tribes assimilating into the Hunnic uh, horde, so to speak. Yeah. Uh, based based on literary sources, of course. It's it's, but also there are there are the whole problem with the Huns and archaeology, first and foremost, is very difficult to tell who's a Hun. Yeah, in the they're first elusive. Place. Well, what is a Hun in the yeah. first place? It seems that um, the Huns are just as much an idea, almost yeah. in part an idea also of modern antiquarianism. And they're they're definitely, yeah. definitely. I mean, there there's no doubt there was an entity uh, that could be identified as the Huns. Uh, we do have graves in the uh, Pontic area, and uh, we do know that there were Hunnic uh, tribes, that's to say, uh, like semi-nomadic or nomadic tribes, on the uh, on the steppe area in uh, in uh, Eurasia. Um, so so the Huns weren't just some like creature or uh, or just uh, a, an entity created out of nothing uh, and we have also earlier cultures you know who were dependent on on, on living on the horseback such as the Scythians such as yeah. the, you know if you go all the way back to uh, like the the stone age I guess you do have uh, a culture there as well uh, which used like these huge stone um, or mace heads oh yeah, yeah um, the, uh... The Battleaxe culture. Battleaxe culture, yeah. yeah. Uh, which were also nomadic. Yeah, yeah. early uh, Indo-European uh, settlers. Exactly, exactly. Mm. Um, so, so the idea of people living on a horseback in the eastern parts of, uh, of the uh, well, eastern European area and into Central Asia uh, is, is, is something we know existed in this period of time. And there... Uh, the graves, we do have graves in that area, uh, which are definitely not Germanic. Um, mm. You clearly see it on, on the burial goods, uh, you clearly see it on, on the weapons they have and use. Uh, also, uh, the way they um, include horses into graves, which really wasn't a Germanic thing at the time. Mm. Uh, horses is something that we see in burials far later in the uh, well, Merovingian period or Vendel period or... yeah. Uh, but also in the Viking Age. So in the Roman Iron Age and Migration period, horses are pretty rare if, well, if they exist at all. 
in Imperials. But they come become very fashionable, right? They do, and, they do. Gradually, gradually, yeah. And along with other items, uh, other along with other motifs such as uh, these raptors, these birds, yeah. uh, make uh, an incursion into Germanic art. Uh, mm. Or if they they you know, they exist existed before, but they become an increasingly popular symbol. Yeah. And uh, for better or worse, you know, by all. By all intents and purposes, uh, the Huns proved to be detrimental to the Western, the health and integrity of the Western Roman Empire, and they do uh, also pose a certain threat to some Germanic tribes as well. But nonetheless, in the long run, the Huns uh, proved to become a great resource, uh, yeah. or it it kind of it's the manure that. Uh, fertilizes the political playing field of the Germanic tribes, yeah. allowing for new kingdoms to rise, you know, in the power vacuum mm. after the... New new entities created um, when when the older kingdoms and older, like, tribal societies disappeared uh, gradually over time. Um, so, so the Huns, they weren't just this boogeyman, this eastern boogeyman. <laughs> As, as Roman sources uh, tells us. Um, of course, we know the Roman um, army used of Huns, as they did with a lot of Germanic peoples as well. You know, they, mm. they, they had auxiliaries, they had foderazzis, you know, people who bent the knee, so to speak, and, and uh, let Rome rule them, um, such as the Franks in the... Um, uh, late fourth century, uh, or at least these Salian Franks, that migrated into the uh, northeastern part of the uh, Roman Empire uh, in modern day Netherlands and Belgium, and settled there. Um, mm. So, so the Romans knew how to treat uh, these uh, other cultures, and of course, the problem with the Roman literary sources is that it's written by one person. Uh, and that person has an agenda. <laughs> yes, of course. Uh, yeah. So what is the actual reality of it doesn't necessarily always uh, reflect uh, the literary sources. Um, and in the end, you know, what is what, what does it mean to be a Roman, for instance? What does it mean to be a Germanic person? What does it mean to be a Hunnic? This is all yeah. being a Roman, current... I guess, is it's the citizenship and it's yeah. the idea. It's like you're being an American, I guess. But, I mean, for, for most people in a society, they would probably not really care that much. I mean, for yeah. the average farmer, I'm sure they cared could... about Roman identity well, when the sure. Roman, yeah, yeah. But when the Roman Empire was at its greatest, when it was great to be a Roman, I'm yeah. sure they cared. But what does it mean to ascribe to this identity when the Western Roman Empire collapses, when they fail to protect you, when they fail to give you the security that you were promised as part of the social mm -hmm. contract? You know, uh, then. Perhaps it's not that interesting to be Roman anymore. It's easy to adapt to new identities. The interesting thing is that, of course, when it comes to like Germanic in, uh, incursions, uh, incursions into the Roman Empire, we don't really have that much evidence for it mm. to begin with. Okay. Yeah. Like ar archaeological evidence, mind you. We do have um, destruction layers, but it could just as well be uh, an accident. Yeah. As it is like a Germanic uh, person, like warmonger or whatever, you know, bloodthirsty Germanic man uh, torching it. Yeah. So it's... And w but we also have like the Romans at least cultivating this idea that 
the yeah. that the Germanic uh, cultures were dangerous and were mm. uh, interloping across the borders yeah. and uh, being a dangerous threat. Like they used uh, in in plays and that sort of thing, they would have masks depicting Batavians, you know, these yeah. uh, Germanic <coughs> tribes as, mm. you know, red-faced and to scare children, basically. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Germanic barbarians were used as, as boogeymen to scare yeah. kids. Mm. Which is uh, something we see in the literary sources as well. Of course, the literary sources, um, they were written for a minority of people, you know. It mm. wasn't written to the average Roman on the streets. It was written to other people who could read. Which of course wasn't that many, <laughs> um, and there's well, with no doubts without uh, doubts about it, there were a lot of Roman emperors who probably couldn't read or write as well. Uh, so just because you were an emperor yeah. didn't necessarily mean you were. Yeah, you you you, you know. hear about the odd uh, idiot emperor now and then. Well, sure, the idiot emperor, but also a lot of them probably didn't need to read and write. Yeah. Uh, because there are people who did it for them, you know, and they just said what needs to be done, and people just did it, you know. Mm. Um, so so to, to, to know the alphabet was not necessarily something you had to. Yeah. Um, Charlemagne is uh, an example of somebody later who was tremendously impressed by, you know, hearing about the Romans in the past. Mm. Uh, considered himself to be basically somebody continuing, you know, burning the Roman torch, so to speak. Yeah. Uh, having an immense focus on education and literacy in his lifetime. But could not read himself. Exactly. Yeah. So you don't need to know the alphabet to rule, which the Germanic kingdoms, I would say, <laughs> prove. <laughs> yes. Of course, they had runes, though. Yeah. But I mean, that's the Knowledge same as societies yeah, for yeah, all yeah, intents yeah, and yeah. purposes. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so so this this idea of the Germanic tribes and the Huns being like the bad guys is, of course, extremely one-sided view. Yeah, but it's also um, the collapse of the of the of the Western Roman Empire. Yes, is uh, is the apocalypse if you're Roman, but uh, if, you're, if 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 you're a Roman aristocrat, perhaps. Yes, yeah. because yes, perhaps, we need to. You know, if you're a peasant, you can get by. You know, as long as you. Yeah, have it doesn't really matter who rules you because yeah. you, only pay, is... you pay their tax. You pay your tax to them, and uh, of course, I mean, yeah. there there are there are a lot of uh, good stuff. Being an emperor uh, in an empire, I mean, yeah. in terms this of having contact, there, well, yeah, sure, but also like trade networks and, and what have you, you know, access to goods that you wouldn't be able to have access to mm. uh, when the uh, when the uh, administrate uh, administrative uh, networks of the empire just disintegrated because there were no one there to administer <laughs> anymore. Yeah. But it's so. but it, okay. So it's it's the apocalypse if you're uh, uh, a patrician. Uh, elitist Roman living on the northern half of the uh, Italian peninsula mm. and and the entire <laughs> empire crumbles all around you yeah. you know then it's probably a crisis but if you're the Lombard horseman settling into some <laughs> some poor governor's mansion after the collapse of the empire this that's is uh, this is paradise on earth right you know this is uh, <laughs> And that's what happens, you know. The mm. eventually the empire collapses. What when is the final, you know, blow of the Western? Oh Roman well, empire? there's like lots of blows, but yeah. I mean the final blow. blow, blow yeah. I mean, often the date is four seventy six, but it's it's like that's just a historical date. It's not actually yeah, archaeological. If, if you had date. a coroner come in and so. uh, survey the body of the Western Roman Empire, you would see like uh, a million stab wounds. 
Yeah, uh, it's it's riddled with holes, basically. Yeah. Um, they made Swiss cheese out of the empire. Yeah. Um, so the thing about an empire is that it's dependent on its ability to govern itself. Um, of course, I'm not going to, like, uh, how should I say, I'm not going to try to sound like I know everything there is to know about how to govern an empire, because, frankly, none of us does. And it's it's so such a complicated uh, bureaucracy yeah because that's what it is it's 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 a bureaucracy you know we're armchair emperors yeah, yeah we're all yeah exactly exactly <laughs> trying to to like imagine and trying to talk with someone that is yeah. not able to talk for themselves um so but when it comes to the archaeological evidence anyways i would say that uh the the collapse of the western roman empire is gradual and it's a slow and steady disintegration. Yeah. Um, it becomes harder to manage. It becomes harder to govern. Um, not necessarily because of the other peoples, as to say, the enemy of Rome, mm. uh, but because the system slowly just gets too difficult to handle. Mm. Um, and what we do see in like the provinces, uh, especially like provincial governors, but also like local leaders. They have to um, depend more and more on recruiting their own armies, because the Roman army, as it was, which by the late Roman em- Empire was quite like highly mobile, it had like uh, troops who were moved from one side of the empire to the other side of the empire, you know, uh, and it's uh, it's it's an army because we often tend to think that like in the late Roman Empire you have like the classical Roman. But it's not so. No. Uh, the Romans in late antiquity uh, or in the late Roman Empire is quite different from their classical uh, forebearers. Yeah, they were wearing pants and they were... <laughs> they were basically much similar to the people on the other side of the Rhine yeah. <laughs> and the other side of the Danube. And, you know, so... And you have the, you know, the, the Germanization of the Roman Empire, militarily speaking, mm. where you have the... Uh, all along the border you have a strong military presence but gradually that military is more and more like the people on the other side you're yeah. trying to defend and that kind of circles back to what we were talking about previously uh, arming the enemy <laughs> yeah <laughs> um, well, not necessarily the enemy but yeah you know what I mean um, so what happens of course is through con- contact and exchange is that the people who are on the other side of the uh, receiving end, so to speak, <laughs> uh, do get the best of the deal. So, in a, in a sense that when, when Romans bought other leaders, it's the leaders who win the bargain. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, when it comes to the, uh, the people who lived closest to the Romans, they often felt uh, the sharp end of the stick. So to yeah, speak. exactly. Yeah. Um, so so they are always the losers so the uh the franks um of course the goths in the eastern part but also the alemanni mm. um and you know the macromanni and etc they they are the people who have to struggle with uh the unpredicted nature of the romans and their empress um yeah. because the, the the empress needed an enemy to fight to 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 gain influence and uh, that goes with a lot of Roman emperors, uh, both in the 1st, 2nd, 3rd, 4th uh, and 5th century. One that I kind of like is uh, Julian, the apostate. Mm. 
um, in the mid fourth century, who uh, as an um, well Augusti as it was back then, because we had a system. Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it's it's not like the classical system. Uh, we had uh, a Caesar on the top, you know, and you had an Augustus underneath, and he was an Augustus, so he didn't have like full control of the empire or anything. Um, but his uncle did, mind you, um, mm. and he was appointed Augustus because his uncle, well, according to the literary sources, killed off the rest of his family. <laughs> so he was the only one left, so yeah. he had to kind of inherit the position because he couldn't trust anyone else. And one thing leads to another, and in the end he himself becomes um, Caesar. Um, and But before doing so, he is like campaigning on the Rhine. And he does uh, attack uh, the Germanic uh, side of the Rhine, let's say the other side of the Rhine, mm. the eastern half, uh, or eastern side. Um, and he does so uh, not just because it was, well, I mean, he had to, because the soldiers needed to do something. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but it's also a way of him uh, gaining uh, political influence. And that is very important in the Roman mindset. Uh, the more victories you have, the greater the victories you have. The more influence you get, I mean, it's it's like the the trading blows. Yeah. Uh, you know, um, the Germanic kingdoms uh, east of the Rhine, they need an enemy as well <laughs> yeah. for their own gain, and the Romans need an enemy as well for their own gain. Um, of course, this is highly simplified. Mm. I mean, I'm pretty sure there's like lots of Germanic leaders uh, that would want to be friends and not enemies with Rome, but also perhaps would want to be enemies and not friends with Rome. You know, so yeah. that kind of goes. Uh, it depends upon the situation, depends upon the time, uh, depends upon like so many different yeah variables uh, one has to take into account. Um, but it's 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 complicated. It's really complicated. It's it's like a Facebook status. It's complicated. <laughs> it's like com- a relationship yeah. status. It's complicated. Yeah. Um, and I but, think yeah. Well, let's talk about okay. So the uh, the Roman Empire collapses. Uh, the Western Roman. That is, you know, I. It's easy to say <laughs> the Roman. But, yeah, because but it's, it's not true. No, you know, no. And. Um, in in northern Italy, you have the Lombards, uh, yeah, who migrate slowly, gradually. Yeah, uh, they they move in, you know, they set up camp, create you know kingdoms there, and you have, in, you know, you have the Franks mm-hmm. develops slowly into the Frankish Empire, mm-hmm. in turn develops into the Holy Roman Empire, with, uh, sh- yeah, that's a long, fast forward there, but you have uh, Charlemagne. Considers himself to be someone who continues in, the, in the eighth Roman, century. Yeah, in my truth, so yeah, the eighth century uh, continues the Roman tradition, so to speak. Also, of course, the great Roman tradition of Christianity, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> which uh, of course they associated. Uh, yeah, uh, the Romans play a big part in the development of uh, medieval Christianity as well. Mm. But uh, that's another episode, I think. And but anyway, you have then the Holy Roman Empire. Uh, Roman law also uh, formed the basis for most legal systems mm. in uh, Europe, growing from the uh, yeah what would be the Viking Age. But of course, it doesn't affect the Vikings. But uh, you have the Romans retreating from uh, Britannia. Yeah. And leaving a power vacuum there, you know, power vacuum is a great word. We've been using it a lot for this term. <laughs> um, but this this power vacuum emerges where the, uh, you know, the Anglo-Saxons or what would become the Anglo-Saxons move in there. The Angles and the, and the Saxons, yeah. yeah. So in that regard, you know, you have uh, 
many of the what would become great kingdoms in Europe mm. uh, emerging and yeah. setting the scene for uh, future cultures, future conflicts and civilizational yeah, 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 clashes. Um, yeah. uh, it's 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 the basically the uh, heritage of Rome. Yeah, modern day Europe is cast in the uh, mold of Rome, or at least we like to think so. Uh, the kingdoms needed a model to follow. Yeah, know? it is. A system to follow. That was... It's kind of like uh, Rome is leaving, you know? And uh, yeah. and everybody else is saying, don't let the door hit your ass on the way out. <laughs> but um, at the same time, Rome enabled so much yeah. of the infrastructure here, you know? It's, it's like what do the when you go to to England, you know? Mm. Uh, my girlfriend talked about. Uh, she's so unimpressed by the Vikings, you know. She sees Sutton Hoo and the Staffordshire Horde, and I try to tell her, you know, but we have the same in Sweden, you know, with the Vendel graves and sure, things like sure, that. Sure. But she's not, you know, it's difficult to. <laughs> to, you know, to but but she has a point yeah. here, and that is the fact that uh, when you go to Anglo-Saxon England, you mm. know, or you go to England and see Anglo-Saxon remains. You often have stone churches, you have uh, buildings that are quite impressive. They have reused a lot of mm, what the Romans mm. left behind. Uh, these are things that are, a lot of these things are foreign to the, oh. you know, the Saxons and the Angles yep. and the Jutes. You know, they sure. came from, uh, they came from uh, wattle and daub houses, you know, longhouses, mm, that mm. sort of thing. Uh, a tradition that is more closely to what uh, we had in Scandinavia at the time. And the Anglo-Saxons very early on began to uh, write Rome into their myth of origin. Mm. And that later on when Christianity came to Scandinavia through, through England, um, people like Snorri, does this, he does the same. He writes uh, Scandinavian and you know, Icelandic history uh, into this Roman tradition. He says that, oh, well... Our ancestors might have worshipped Odin and Thor and all of these, you know. But, you know, Odin and Thor, they moved, they were Trojans. Yeah, exactly. They had the same origin as the uh, Romans did. Mm. And the Anglo-Saxons said that we have the same origins as the Romans, which is Troy. Mm. So what Snorri is basically saying in Ynglinga Saga, you know, and when they talk about the genealogies of Harold Fairhair, the national unifier of Norway, they're going back, you know, to Odin, but like the then they write the genealogy from Odin back to Adam, right? Exactly. So they're saying that, okay, yeah, well, Odin was kind of like a bad apple here, you know, but he is, they couldn't, and that's the same with the Anglo-Saxons too, they can't disregard the pagan history because, the, you know, they would basically be saying that all our kings are bullshit before, mm -hmm. you know, and power doesn't change like that. No. Uh, it wants to tie itself into whatever it can. Of course. Point, but also keeping what it has. Yeah, I mean, the thing about the Angles, the Saxons that settled uh, in Britain, or at least in England, um, and but also the, the other Germanic kingdoms that would appear in the uh, early Roman territories of the Western Roman Empire, they are basically also heavily influenced by Rome uh, to such an extent that calling them Romanized Germans isn't yeah. that far-fetched. I mean, I wouldn't say that they're Roman Germans uh, or Germanic people. 
Um, well, the barbarians who want uh, the they they, they want for the good life. Yeah, like, yeah, 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 yeah. And and if anything, interestingly enough, they want it, to march in line. In a way, there are like a few uh, Germanic persons, I guess you could say, in in uh, in the uh, Roman accounts that does have an agenda to maintain Rome, the glory of Rome, if you will. Yeah. Uh, whatever that means. <laughs> Uh, just to maintain and keep the infrastructure, keep the administration going on, even after the, um, well, essentially Roman influence over what, what would have been much of the uh, Western half of the Roman Empire has diminished by then. Mm. Yeah, um, speaking of Charlemagne, you know, that's... Uh... Yeah, Charlemagne, but also you have like Odoker in the late 5th century. He's often like portrayed as a bad guy, but if you actually kind of look closer to the sources, he's not that much of a villain as uh, as, as one would think. Mm. Uh, if anything, he wants to do as many of his other previous emperors did, which is keep things going, you know, keep the show going. Um, um, and it's it's often easy to to judge by mm. modern scholars, uh, modern historians. Uh, when, I mean, of course, we, we, we can't say for certain when it comes to anything uh, in terms of what these people thought, what we're doing, etc., etc. So the, the kind of like, um, how should I say, uh, dystopian view of the Western Roman Empire collapsing and it's just like a, a wasteland of culture, nothing exists, you know. <laughs> Uh, is 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 often easy to uh, to to imagine when in fact it's quite uh, the reality is quite different. Um, it's it's quite a complicated process, and a lot of as I already mentioned um, ideas and influences is uh, uh, absorbed into these Germanic kingdoms and applied in everyday life by the aristoc aristocrats and by the aristocracy as a whole. Um, and it's uh, as we mentioned in, in later sources when you get to the late Viking Age and into the early Middle Ages when it becomes really important to tie your lineage back to the, well Rome basically mm. essentially um, it's of course I wouldn't draw a, a direct line between what happens there and what happens in the wake of West Norman Empire collapsing um, but of course for a lot of these Germanic kings, it is regardless if you're living in the empire or not. It is important to, because lineage is is important. Genealogy is important, you know. Yeah. Um, for, establishes regardless uh, of when or where. A ruling tradition yeah. is uh, exactly. tremendously important. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Um, and this also goes for these leaders who want to create something more lasting than their predecessors. For instance, in the Roman Iron Age, early Roman Iron Age, mm. and. Uh, and and um, yeah, during the first uh, centuries uh, AD, and you can understand why you know because before before you establish such a tradition of rulership, you you need to start from scratch. Yeah. Every generation, <clears throat> mm. every time somebody dies, uh, you need and there are probably benefits to that if you're talking from, <laughs> I guess, uh, a libertarian. Would probably say that that's good you know because every sure every new leader has you know all the leaders back then they had what we call skin in the game yeah I guess, yeah, you know? oh yeah definitely, but you definitely. also you need to uh, you need to assert this and establish it 
every new generation. Yeah. When your father dies, other people go, fuck you, you know, I don't need to do business with you. Mm. And then you have to prove yourself. In a and, sense. This, and this actually... But uh, this yeah. is exhausting if you're a ruler. You want to establish yourself on it. Mm. In the tradition, you say that I have a right to, right to rule because I follow this either either uh, this uh, tradition, this political tradition or this uh, genetic tradition, whatever mm. it is, you know. It's, 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 it's the thing that you mentioned about uh, having to renegotiate because that's kind of what, what it is. It's renegotiating, you know. Yeah. Uh, when a leader dies, be it an emperor, be it a king, be it a chieftain, uh, things has to be redone. Mm. more or less um, that's what we do see even in the middle ages you know a king dies and alliances are perhaps in the danger of collapsing you know or they have to rewrite things because there's a new guy on the throne and this also goes for the uh, Roman period you know uh, the Roman uh, emperors had to renegotiate mm -hmm. when there was a new emperor with the Germanic kingdoms yeah. because it's a new guy that so. makes you know it's hilariously ironic that the Roman Empire then forms the basis of what is essentially a royal tradition in Europe, you know, that goes all the mm. way up. Like it, it, yeah. it is without, without the Roman empire, there would be no, uh, these high medieval kingdoms, you know, with oh. these chivalric states, all of that, this would not. And, and the symbolism exist. wouldn't exist either. Like the crown is yeah. technically speaking, uh, descended from the diadem worn by the emperor, which yeah. of course has Eastern, uh, well, origins or, or Greek origins. But it's so ironic the because the, the Romans hated monarchy. <laughs> they hated it. Like when the Romans, when, when, when the Senate discussed, you know, what, what is the absolute worst thing? And it's like, well, it's monarchy. They go back to the, this early, the earliest history of Rome, like the old, you know, legendary stuff, mm. is, you know, when they had these kings. And they, and they always look to that as the bad examples. That's a shit way to rule the Roman yeah. spot. But we do see, of course... But it develops, yeah. interestingly, it's, in the opposite direction, it's, eventually. It's, it's, and it's a necessity. And gives birth uh, to during monarchy. The, yeah, yeah. During the imperial period, it's a necessity to rule. Because mm. the empire becomes so big that you need to centralize this to, to one person. Yeah, because you need it's a charismatic leader who receives yeah, the yeah, sacrifices. Yeah, exactly, who, yeah. exactly, yeah. So it gets too complicated for an emperor to be governed uh, just through the Senate. The Senate works. I mean, of course, there's probably people who will debate this mm. uh, or, you know, uh, or thinks otherwise. Uh, but the Senate and the Roman Senate is just that. It's the Roman Senate for the Roman mm. people, for the Roman state. That's to say, the 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 area where the Romano came from, you know, um, so, and there's also this thing about um, I I guess it's debatable whether or not this is a how much of this is Roman influence and how much was already there, you know, in mm. Scandinavia at the time, uh, already and way back into the Bronze Age when of course, you have yeah. the, but this idea of a charismatic leader mm. that forms the of course in in Scandinavia you had a very strong military aristocracy uh, and it was very easy to be a political leader if you had had military power of yeah. course you know that was that was the the rules of the game yeah but uh it's really interesting how much of this uh parallels you even though in rome it's infinitely on a larger scale yeah you know everybody needs to swear fealty to the emperor mm. but on a much 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 smaller scale you still have the same in the petty kingdoms of scandinavia and Many of what is modern counties today, which are mundane administrational regions, mm. you know, these 
were originally uh, small tribal kingdoms, which were unified at some point into these, you know, states which developed into the national states, yeah. uh, you know, in Sweden, Denmark, and Norway. Yeah. But these counties still exist. Already in the Iron Age, you have these ideas of the king, uh, mm. a charismatic leader, which has so many parallels to, to the uh, to the Roman Emperor. In the Viking Age, you have the skaldic poetry, uh, surrounding especially the uh, leader we know as Håkon Jarl, mm. in Middle Norway, and he is uh, interesting because he could be said to be some sort of pagan extremist. He tries to reform paganism, Norse polytheism, in some regard, it seems. Basically, this grows out of the fact that Norway is politically unstable at the time. After the unification of Harald Fairhair, this is a couple of generations afterwards. Sure, sure. And uh, the whole unification of Norway is up to debate. You know, it's not... <laughs> not everybody agrees with that yeah, idea, yeah. even though the idea of Norwegians exists at this point in the Viking Age. Mm. Now... Håkon Jarl is also what you could sometimes refer to. Like, there are elements there of a sacred king. Mm. He, in the, in the skaldic poetry surrounding his court, there is uh, mentions of the gods favoring him, while other people, his enemies, are basically trolls. You know, they are these dehumanized, yeah. non-human creatures that are in league with the powers of chaos. And when the country was ruled by these people, the crops were not growing, the mm. gods were angry, the gods left the sanctuaries. But now that the people have turned, you know, and, and towards the Jarl, the gods are returning to the temples, which are being reconstructed by him because he was fighting very early Christian rulers mm-hmm. in Norway at the time. He reconstructs the pagan sacred places and he starts having these feasts. The gods are content and happy. The fertility has returned to the earth. And it's all thanks to this one guy, right? (laughs) There is something in this that the Vikings here had in common with the Romans, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And it's interesting you you mentioned um, Håkon Jarl. Because, I mean, through literary sources, we see that uh, the the right to rule is divine. Yes. in, In a sense. And this is also something, of course, the Roman emperors did, you know, that's one of the reasons why they converted to Christianity, because it gets easier to get approved for your position if there's an entity above you that has granted you the position. Yeah, you're and above the law, but you're, it's yeah. God that's put you there. Exactly. Hmm. Um, and, of course, during the 4th and 5th century, we do see Roman emperors uh, depicted on coins more and more, um, mm-hmm. in the sense that it's, of course, they do depict themselves on coins before this. Um, but the um, uh, the iconography on on the coins are extremely interesting because in Scandinavia at the same time we do see, uh, but also in in the Black Sea area. So it's not something we see purely in Scandinavia. In the first half of the fourth century, we do see imitations of Roman coins with people depicted on the uh, obverse uh, or the front, that's to say. Uh, on the coin uh, and later on in the second half of the 4th century we start to see Germanic uh, depictions like 
direct copies of Roman coins with Germanic kings mm. posing as the emperor, wearing the regalias of the emperor. That's to say, wearing the diadem, wearing the uh, mantle of the emperor, wearing everything that is associated with the emperor, but not as the emperor himself, but as the local leader. Mm. And um, so, some of these coins, they even have imitation Latin writing. Co- coins are all, all like medallions. Oh, okay, yes. yeah, 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 they're more like medallions. Um, so, um, you do have currency, of course, the Solidus mm. at this time. Uh, the the Aureus was no longer in use. Okay, um, I'm mixing up. Yeah, yeah, so. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, but so it's, it's called a Solidus, uh, which is you know soldier. Solidus mm. is actually etymologically related, um, and it's like the 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 salary the soldier had. Oh uh, yeah, a gold coin, you know. And of course, depending upon your uh, position within the army, you would get more gold coins, basically. <laughs> the more important you were, the more gold coins you got. Mm. It's, a, it's um, a paid... Uh, a professional... Uh, yeah. Not, yeah, it's a professional... It's, uh, it's, it's, it's a vocation, you know. Yeah. It's, it's based upon a vocation, and based upon the, the position you have, the more money you get. Mm. Um, and, um, of course, this, this also reached Scandinavia into Barbaricum, and... Um, but there's also another currency which isn't money currency, which is the medallions, yeah. which was given by the emperor to selected Germanic leaders, um, those that were friendly to the emperor, you know, uh, that probably bent the knee <laughs> some, <laughs> some way or another, um, and uh, approved to Roman rule um, or Roman, Roman governorship. Um, especially during this period when you have like lots of federati states, that's to say people who are basically are levied to, to serve in the Roman Empire, uh, or in, in the Roman army. And um, in the late uh, half of the fourth uh, century, uh, these coins or these medallions circulate well far and wide in the um, Germanic-speaking world. And some of them probably uh, found their way to Scandinavia, uh, or at least some Scandinavians saw these medallions and they thought they were really nice because they were really nice they are really nice mind you they're like uh, some of them weigh around two three hundred grams of pure gold they're like huge mm. medallions with the emperor you know uh, in seen from uh, from uh, the side a profile view of, of the emperor and on the back it might be the emperor uh, seated on the horse doing salutes or what have you yeah and uh, this was replicated in Scandinavia. Uh, again, not as the emperor, but as the leader <laughs> who commissioned it. Uh, so we do see these um, these kings um, de- depicting themselves as emperors, uh, and that kind of goes to show the mindset, the uh, megalomania, so to speak, uh, of of these leaders, mm. and and how they thought of themselves, and how they wanted to be portray- portrayed uh, amongst the other peoples in their local uh, community uh, and uh, the society they were part of uh, back home. Mm. Um, because of course, as I said, this, this motive needed to reach into Scandinavia one way or another and most likely was people who were, uh, it's, it's hard to say, but perhaps you, you were uh, dividing a, a huge gold hoard, you know, a payment from, a, from a, one of the emperors. Like uh, Theodosius, let's say Theodosius, or Valentian, or you know, Valens, or or, or um, one of these uh, emperors, and uh, you took your part, and as the leader of your community, be it like a general, or be it as the king himself, returning back to uh, your home country um, after service for a 
short period, like a contract, because uh, we do see they they probably levied a lot of uh, auxiliary only for short campaigns or a campaign, and then they had to return back from where they came from. You know, <laughs> they no, no longer and uh, they no longer needed them. Um, and um, yeah, so so these uh, these coins then became extremely symbolic. Uh, to the uh, Scandinavian, but also to the Germanic uh, aristocrats, uh, the elites, uh, and later on, when we do get our, our, uh, the, the own like Germanic uh, animal art, the style uh, that is uh, style one, Saline mm. style one, in the middle part of the fifth century, uh, which is very much the uh, the beginning of uh, the uh, animal style that we do see, uh, or mm. animal ornamentation that we do see later on into the Viking Age. And yeah, and and ages. for those listeners who are not aware of the <laughs> three animal styles of uh, Bernard Sarlin, uh that was were outlined in his Alt Germanische Tieronomantik that you can find online. Uh, it's free. Uh, it's basically three different uh, general uh, epochs of uh, Germanic animal art. And if you've seen any Anglo-Saxon art or Viking Age art or even like the art on the early slave churches, you've seen basically the descendants of these art styles. Mm. Disembodied, plastic... Uh, Beasts, creatures of all different kinds, and often, you know, uh, kind of thrown around and difficult to identify at first, but they grow as you, as you look uh, closer to them, you know? It's, uh, it's, uh, some, some scholars, uh, make an analogy to, like, being an acid trip, uh, well, uh... I've made that comparison. (laughs) I did an article for, uh, Scandinavian Kunstforum. Yeah. Where I basically made the controversial assertion that, uh... Pagan Scandinavian and Germanic art has more in common with Salvador Dali than it does with Greek or Roman art. Yeah, I, I would it's, agree. It's, uh, it's uh, surrealistic. It has these uh, elements to it that are found in the avant-garde and the surreal. Where things that are totally opposite are portrayed as if they are akin to each other. They find the most opposite extremes and find ways for them to adapt together. And that's... Uh, a sort of thinking that you don't get in the Roman Empire, but you do get it in the Germanic one. And mm-hmm. it's a real it's, interesting it's... interpretation here, you know, where you have some of those originally Roman, but when Germanic cultures, when time comes for them to assert themselves, mm. they start doing really innovative stuff. Yeah. It's it's something we see in the late 4th century. Uh, that's when we do have the uh, beginnings of what will be Germanic animal art. Um, which is heavily influenced by Roman iconography, mind you, uh, Roman art, mm. the uh, the classical art, if you will, um, and it's adopted either directly or made into something that looks similar to Roman art, uh, but not quite so. Mm. Uh, and it's uh, from um, well, different uh, weapon sacrifices, uh, Nidam, uh, Sørstala. Uh, Nydam in Denmark, Sørstala in Sweden. These are two mm. different styles, uh, animal styles. Uh, and then later on, we do see you know uh, this evolving into uh, or changing, uh, rather into the uh, style one that we talked about. Um, but these two early styles, they are the beginnings. 
we do have depictions like metal decorations, uh, decorated surfaces uh, made by Germanic craftsmen in the early 4th century, in the 3rd century and 2nd century, but um, which are very much Germanic <laughs> mm. and, and depicting animals um, and, and humans and what have you, but not in this style that we do see uh, in the late 4th and early 5th century, uh, which incidentally is also when we do have the very emergence of the like defined and more permanent kingdoms. Mm. Yeah. So it is uh, very important. Previously in a different episode I talked about the runes and how they emerge here. It's basically a Roman imitation too. It is influenced both by Roman and Greek and Etruscan letters and mm. things like that. But we see, you know, in the migration period and things like that, we, we see these bracteates. I guess yeah. they uh, they first appear in the late Roman period, but yeah, I mean in the beginning there are actually like uh, imitations of Roman medallions, as mm. I mentioned. Uh, but but that that's the origin of them. And and we see here that sometimes they have imitation lettering that is obviously imitating, or it appears to be imitating uh, Roman writing, but it's yeah, letters, not. Yeah. But it's not it's not Roman writing. It's no. uh, it's something that looks like the runes. But we're not sure if this is actually... It doesn't seem to have any parallels. Like, some of these symbols you can only find on one specific medallion, yeah. you know. And, and it, it just seems that these are... It's the idea of having writing that yeah. is most important. It's yeah. uh, it's uh, it's asemic writing, they call mm. it in, in the arts. Asemic writing is uh, writing that doesn't have any sort of language content. But it's just visually striking. Yeah. It's a very fascinating thing. And this is... Asemic writing uh, was apparently uh, popular with these Germanic elites. Yeah. Uh, runic writing too. You know, it was prestigious to know how to write mm. uh, runes. But they didn't use it for any practical purpose. They used it for magic. They used it to, to show off. Uh, different things, but they do not use it for practical purposes. No, it's it's, it's not like in the Middle Ages where you send messages yeah. on like sticks. Yeah, in, in, in medieval Bergen they would write <coughs> runic letters and send yeah. them to, to people. But this uh, this doesn't seem to exist yeah. in this period. This idea so. is totally foreign yeah, to these yeah, people, yeah. but it's based on Roman, uh, on Roman use of writing on items intended for display. I mm. suppose monumental things or also prestige items with inscriptions. It's, it's interesting because uh, writing in itself wasn't necessary in Scandinavia or in Babericum at all. No, to, to, it was to, an oral to, society. Yeah, yeah. And it, it had, you know, people who had served their roles. It might have been like people who were supposed to remember stuff and what have you, you know. I guess yeah, you know more had, about this than, than yeah, I do. You had, uh, like, in yeah. Scandinavia, in, uh, at least in the Viking Age, probably yeah. earlier as well, you have people whose designated role it is to mm. for example remember the entire law so you had assembly assemblies at certain times of the year or like once a year or something like that and these persons would recite the entire law you know from start to finish and there are also people whose uh, position it was to be keepers of tales who remembered the old traditions who had an overview of the oral culture mm. and and the legendary material that uh, that was the common heritage of uh, of their society for instance when the runic alphabet developed from the elder futhark which is what most people 
think about when they think about the runes, when that developed into the shorter runic alphabet known as the Younger Futhark. This happened in the 8th century AD. It seems to have been a conscious decision made by a select little class of specialists in Scandinavia at the time, because the transition happens more or less all over Scandinavia in a very short time frame, and it, it just seems to be something that occurs when an environment of people decide to, to change something. So they reformed the runes from the Elder Futhark to the Younger Futhark, so there was a scholarly class or something like that, preserving runic knowledge. Mm. And we know this in part because there's a, a, an intriguing inscription in, um, in Sweden called the Rökstone. It's the longest runic inscription, and it has both uh, Younger and Elder Futhark on it. Though it's an early version of Old Norse, the language itself. And it also has cipher runes. That is a runic code. That is numerological in, in nature. And it also references Norse mythology. But also uh, what would then be pretty ancient history. But not as ancient as it is today, of course. But it references <laughs> Theodoric, the Lombard king. It's, um, it's interesting uh, in the sense... I mean, this whole idea of a written language and for it to function for it to, to be used uh, of course uh, the, the reason you write is because you need to keep accounts it's mm. a bureaucratic need yes uh, Germanic kings didn't need that because uh, the whole basis of their rule like rulership is completely different from mm. that of, uh, of an emperor in, in practice yeah it's very direct yeah it's very direct it's it's you and me we make a deal and we go from there. Mm. And it's it's uh, efficient in a way that you know who you're dealing with. You see the person. You have to see the person to make the deal. Um, but whilst with a, an emperor, you know, when, when an emperor was elected in another part of the empire, you probably never saw the emperor. You just yeah. knew he existed. But you had to accept that he was going to be the emperor. He was going to govern everything. Um, so you never met the emperor, and the emperor was also like clouded in, in a bit of mystique, uh, like mysticism, um, and you know, given his position in society, his his influence, uh, his lifestyle, not least of all, you know, this luxurious lifestyle <laughs> um, that only uh, like most people could dream of. Uh, it just seems so surreal. Um, these were like multi-billionaires, you know, uh, of their time. Uh, some of them were even wealthier than uh, the wealthiest person alive nowadays. Of course, the letters and, and the writing uh, wasn't that important uh, in, in Barbaricum. I mean, because we don't really have that much archaeological evidence of Germanic people in the Roman Empire. But we do have one stone, uh, actually a huge stone, uh, a f like a funerary um, uh, still, stela, um with an inscription uh, that talks about a guy called Hariulf mm. um, or Hariulfus, uh, which was a Burgundian prince in the 4th century, late 4th century. And it's the only attested Roman source of a Germanic speaking person in the Roman Empire, in a political or in a position in the Roman Empire, mind you. Mm. Like archaeologically proven. That's um, a. That's a damn germanic name you know <laughs> it's it's that's 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 germanic what are they call they say nomen est omen you know that, that <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
but it's it's interesting because it was found uh, in uh, Trier uh, during the late nineteenth uh, century, and it basically is um, uh, this uh, young Harjulf in his twenties who's died, and um, it's his uh, uncle that puts up the stone in memory of mm. this guy. And he was uh, a very important guy because he served as a protector domis- uh, uh, domesticius, um, and which is a uh, like a royal uh, unit, like an army unit uh, associated with the emperor. And so mm. it was like uh, I wouldn't call it the bodyguards, but it was like the field army of the emperor. Okay, yeah. Uh, and he served in that uh, that. Um, yeah, a clear yes. example of the Germanization of the Roman army, as we talked yeah, about. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, so that's the only um, evidence of, of someone of Germanic background serving in uh, the Roman army uh, that we have, archaeologically speaking. Um, and, of course, we know that people served in the Roman army. So what they brought with them back home, we can only guess, you know, mm. did they actually learn to write themselves? The interesting thing is that this guy, this uncle um, of uh, Haryuf, um was clearly in the Roman Empire, mm. but his brother, Haryuf's father, was the Burgundian king. Oh, wow, yeah. So, so the... Some uh, connection is going so, on. So, so, yeah, so, so the brother of this king, he is, he lives in the Roman Empire, you know, he's Romanized. His uh, nephew serves in the royal guard, if you will. Um, and his father is the king of the Burgundians. So uh, this is in the fourth century, of course. Um, but the stone kind of reminds you of the memorial inscriptions in Scandinavia and the Viking Age. It does, which is yeah. exactly it. So it is basically, uh, I mean, there's like a whole Latin uh, yeah. writing, um, but it basically is like a memory uh, yeah. in, in, in his... Uh, I mean, because he died so young, you know, uh, and it's just rem- remembering who you were uh, as a person. Germanic cultures have a strong emphasis on the culture of memory, commemoration, I guess, it's commemorative culture. But you also find it in Rome, of course, in, yeah, in, in Roman I suppose so, uh, yeah. culture. Uh, Maybe it's not so different to other places. No. But... And of course, you do have like uh, tombs alongside the road, you know, with mm. people uh, being carved in stone, mm. so that statues, so they can remember you. It's uh, very important in Scandinavia, nonetheless. Yeah. Definitely, definitely. Um, so, so there is a connection, and um, like the 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 letters themselves on the on the backtrits that we talked about a bit earlier, um, like the Roman letters weren't important. Uh, it's it's the idea of the letters that yeah. are important. What they represent. Uh, yeah. Um, and if some Germanic prince uh, serving in the Roman Empire did return, mm. I guess most of them didn't though, <laughs> because <laughs> you know they probably died like this guy, uh, or uh, they just decided to get integrated into the uh, empire itself. Um, because remember that uh, a lot of these people um, that took up uh, and did serve in the empire probably did so to get a citizenship. Uh, much uh, like the um, uh, French Legion, yeah, the French Foreign Legion, yeah, yeah. yeah French Foreign Legion uh, does the same. Uh, so you get a citizenship after your uh, well time has been served, so to speak. Yeah, I never thought about that before, but I guess that this uh, proximity to the Roman Empire must have 
benefited a lot of people who were looking for that yeah. sort of change. Yeah, you know, definitely. And, you know, and, and had the opportunity to do so. And, and it's interesting because in the northern provinces, that's to say in um, well, modern-day Belgium, modern-day northern France, but also in the Netherlands, we do have uh, a lot of uh, cemeteries uh, that probably are... Uh, Germanic cemeteries, uh, but in Roman style. <laughs> okay. They have like a Roman sarcophagi, and like they're they're like interred into like Roman cemeteries, but their uh, their grave goods are mm. Germanic. Uh, but it's like an intermixing between the Germanic styles and the um, like it could be like Roman jewelry and what have you. Uh, but like with Germanic women, they have like brooches on either side of the. Um, of the head on the show on the shoulders, yeah, which uh, closes mm. the uh, the dress they wore, which is the peplos. The peplos, yeah, yeah, uh, which uh, is found in these graves. Yeah, yeah so. you, but the peplos, you know, even yeah, you can see that in uh, in Scandinavian fashion up in yeah, yeah. Uh, after oh, in the Merovingian period. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It has yeah. old roots all the way back to the pre-Roman yeah. Iron Age in 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 Scandinavia. Wow, there's a lot of stuff to talk about here, fashion. Uh, and the development of uh, of the posh elites in Scandinavia, but we're gonna have to wrap it up. Freaking hell! So well, thank you very much. Thank uh, you. Axel. And thank you. Uh, you know, do you have any last words? Oh, I would just like to thank you for inviting me onto your podcast. Uh, as a listener as well, drink and be merry. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Brute Norse podcast. Feel free to subscribe, share, or pledge your support at Patreon.com/slash/BruteNorse. My supporters always get to hear the podcast before anybody else, and there's also some special outtakes and other tidbits. If not, you can support me by telling your friends or grandma or whatever, you know, and uh, rating the podcast on iTunes. Anyway, this is all I got for you this round, so have a great day. (laughs) 